two explanations I can think of, or applications, I would say. So from a, imagine I get stopped by a traffic cop and he's asking me for a bribe to expedite something or to, to you know, because I committed some traffic felony. Uh, if I knew a traffic felony, a tra- sorry, it's pretty, pretty serious. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Sorry. Like you hit a somebody traffic- and dragged them for a while. Welcome back to the live drop. I am in Nairobi, Kenya, speaking with James Vensel, the CEO and co-founder of the Busara Center for Behavioral Economics. It's a research and advisory firm dedicated to advancing and applying behavioral science in the global south. Um, listen, I'm not a spy, but if I was, I'd want to understand the people here in Kenya, and that's exactly what they do for businesses, organizations, and for um, some government agencies. We had a very interesting discussion, James and I, we talked about honesty versus cheating, cultural versus socioeconomic factors, individual versus communal decision-making, and basically human nature by region. We talked a little bit about life in Nairobi, um, the M-Pesa system, where almost 80% of the population can pay for anything with their cell phones. And this Mutatu bus system, it's a chaotic and elegant solution to crazy city traffic. Begin transmission now. So we got set up about six years ago now. Um, so, so the world of behavioral economics really got popular, I'd say really got popularized in the last you know, 15, 20 years, but, but was found, you know, some of the seminal papers came out in the 70s and 80s, but they were mostly done in psych research labs or business school research labs at the, the top universities in the world. So they're typically in the U.S. or the U.K., and they were usually running these quick tests on undergraduate students at these universities. Now, while we've learned a lot from them, they're not necessarily generalizable to, to the broader world population, but particularly the, the populations that often were designing development policy or, or various sort of new kind of products that are they're entering these markets. Um, so the application of those insights was, was a bit constrained or a bit limited. Um, so about six years ago, our, our, our founder, so Johannes Haushofer, he's a professor at Princeton University, um, had a little bit of a grant money to explore. He was really interested in this question of how does... Um, the psychology of stress, sort of like being under resource stress or, or time stress, how does that lead you to make potentially different decisions? Especially uh, in poverty. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So if you are thinking about how am I going to feed my kids tonight or how am I going to pay off this quick loan I took, you might make quicker or more hasty decisions and, and you might end up in a, a worse situation at the end. So is that something that perpetuates a sort of like vicious cycle that because I'm resource constrained, I make quicker decisions. And as a result, I end up losing some money and then I'm even poorer. And, and so you kind of get stuck. Um, so, so our initial thinking was there's a lot of research that's gone out. It's been really useful in designing public policy all over the world, particularly the last 15, 20 years. Not much of it's rooted in the context that, that we're trying to work in. Mm-hmm. Can we set up just a basic lab um, to, to run similar experiments? So what about your background? Where did you, where did you, where are you from originally? Uh, so I'm from the States. I am from Arizona, born and raised. Mm-hmm. Um, so my background was, was I was interested in pursuing uh, academia and development economics. I, I came out to, to Kenya actually originally as a university student and then later um, took my first positions out here working with a couple academics from, from Dartmouth and Yale. And then thereafter met Johannes and met some of these other guys and, and they were interested in kind of kicking up this, this behavioral lab and, and setting it up. So I decided I never wanted to leave. But you, so you started out with a, more like a business. You started out like with a with a business ma- as a business major or economics. Yeah, yeah. No, I and I, I felt like I wanted to go down academic academic routes. Um, I pursued that for a bit, but I realized I think our most valuable work we're doing here is is our actual business applications. How are we taking the 
real rigor and, and methods that are used in academia and, and making them accessible to industry. Um, and that's what I'm more excited about personally. And how are you doing that? What kind of data do you have? I mean, what are you, what are you watching? What are you analyzing? How are you, how are you getting the information that you need? I think some of the earlier things that we, we started doing and we've, we've continued is trying to test a number of these basic sort of vignettes or, or psychological scenarios and see how they vary by culture, context, socioeconomic status, and then generalizing those and, and taking them to industry. Um, so that's what we're doing in our lab studies, quick psych tests, which, which I can talk a little bit more. Uh, Wait a minute, you have quick psych tests going on <laughs> right now in this office? Uh, there's probably some going on, uh, not on our, our staff. No, no, <laughs> Much no, no. To, yeah. I want to make sure that they're, they're not going to stop working here after listening to this podcast. But uh, no, no, no. So we, we are doing some stuff in our lab next door um, right now. So we're doing, for instance, one quick, one quick test on how to reduce cheating. So mm-hmm. thinking about how to, why do people cheat? Um, there's a lot of good research to show that pretty much everyone cheats, but just a little bit and in ways that you can rationalize. Um, so one of my favorite studies on this is they bring students in to, to do a math exam of some sort. You have to rapid fire, fill out a number of questions, and then they inform them that they're going to shred the answers. You tell us how many you got right, and we'll pay you for the number you got right. Uh, there's a shredder. You go up to the front. You, you look like you shred the paper th- through to the bottom, so no one can know how many you actually got right. In reality, the shredder was, was you know, rigged to basically not shred the most important pieces, so then we could look at it afterwards. This was in our study. This was done at Carnegie Mellon, I believe. Um, and so what they did is they, they basically saw, where did people cheat? There were a few people who just said, yeah, I got all of them right. Give me the money. But for the most part, they didn't. What most people tended to do was they rounded up a bit. So maybe ones they were close to finishing or ones they like just got just the wrong answer, yeah. they would give them credit, themselves credit for. So what we found is, is we're running a basic game here, which is we tell people to flip a coin 20 times. For every heads you get, you're going to be paid 25 shillings. It's about 25 cents. No one's watching them. They're able to report as many as they want. We just tell them at the end of the day, tell us how many you you reported. So we did this trial late last week and we found the average was about 14 and a half. So probability wise, it should be 10, right? If you flip 20, you should get about 10 on average. Um, but most people are reporting 15. They're not reporting 20. They could be, right? But they just want to round up a little bit. Plausibly, you could get 15. They don't want to feel like a cheater. I mean, could, could you sort of graph that consistently? So what we found is what you'd expect is if you told people, hey, hey take 20, you know, you can say up to 20 and you'll get the most money for that. Most people would gravitate towards that. That's like the rational thing for them right. to do. But there's this idea of, of sort of a self-image of a non-cheater. And I think if you take 20, you start to internalize that and you feel like a cheater. And that might be actually more painful than the extra you know, dollar you're getting out of it. So what you tend to see in the distribution is there's actually a... Uh, it should just be a normal distribution around 10, right? Some people a little less, some people a little more. You tend to find very few people less than 10 because um, everyone can plausibly say, I got at least 10. Most people gravitate between 12 to 15, right? So they're just cheating a little bit. It's plausible they could have gotten 12. That's, that's very, you know, that's very much within the realm of possibility. To get 15, I think, is about a 1 in 70 chance to get 15 out of 20 heads. Um, there's only, we did this with 50 people, right? So the odds of even one of them getting that is very unlikely. Um, but, but you tend to see they gravitate on things that seem plausible so they can rationalize it a bit. So how do you use that information? How does that information help business? We did this study because we were running, last week we were running this exec ed course with, with a number of executives, mostly mm-hmm. from government um, offices or, or different sort of uh, public policy institutions. Um, we were using this to think about 
how do you deal with corruption in, in an economy like this, right? So cheating and corruption are not necessarily the same, but, but there are certain sort of elements that, that reflect. So we asked this group of policymakers, we said, here's the result of just a, a random sample of 50 Nairobians. Here's what they got. What would you change in the environment? What do you think would reduce cheating? And so they came up with three ideas that we've then tested. Um, so one was monitors. That's typically the response, like put people in, monitor what's going on. Uh, that's what we do with elections. That's what we do with you know any sort of financial transaction at a bank. Uh, that was like the first idea. Second was explicit expectations. So we had them say, we expect most answers to be between 8 and 12. Probability says that most of you will get somewhere between 8 and 12, which is not false. That, that's generally true. Um, and the third was this idea of if you were no longer cheating for yourself, would you still cheat? So the application they thought here is a lot of times in government offices, procurement departments rotate um, professionals from ministry to ministry. The idea is to, to not get too settled, to build up an infrastructure that, that may have different connections or be less competitive or a little stale. Um, so they had every five flips. Or is that a precaution against, against possible corruption as well? I think, it's, just... I think it's a mix of things. I think part of it's just like, it's probably efficient or it's probably good to keep people kind of moving um, and make sure that you're not having a, a really inefficient procurement department in the Ministry of Finance versus a very efficient one in the Ministry of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a little bit of rotation that way. I think the other is potentially you worry about people um, getting entrenched or, or having too many vested interests. I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but I've, I've heard this as a tactic from, from policymakers in, in different economies is rotating people, right? Keeping mm -hmm. it kind of fresh. Um, so th that was the idea is parallel that. So if after five flips, they moved to the next station. So now they were no longer cheating for themselves. They were cheating for someone else. And it had this sort of bigger social implication. Is, are we all going to cheat or do I only care about what's going on for me? Um, so what do you think worked? What do you think was most effective? The monitor. Yeah, no, that's, that's what most people thought. That's what yeah. the, the policymakers thought as well. Uh, it wasn't. So oh, what was it? It was the explicit expectation, actually. So saying we expect most to between be between 8 and 12. So corruption is, has, uh, there's an expectation to it. So I don't know if it, there's an expectation. I think it's more, so there's two ways to view it. Oh, what was the word, what was he said? You said 8 to 10. 8 to 12. So we said we expect 12. most responses to be between 8 and 12. Interesting thing is you see a big spike at 12, right? Because now people can rationalize that. You've told them it could, it seems likely that it could be 12. 12 came out of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so we try it. So the second, we're going to run some other tests next week to do what if it's 7 to 13? Or what if it's 6 to 14? Or what if it's 9 to 10, right? Or 9 to 11, sorry. Um, and then will that narrow it? Or what level of flexibility do people need, right? So 9 to 11 might feel really narrow and, and people might end up just saying, oh, you know, forget it, I'm going to go to, to the, the extreme. But 8 to 12 feels like a little bit extra. Two explanations I can think of, or applications, I would say. So from a, imagine I get stopped by a traffic cop and he's asking me for a bribe to expedite something or to, to you know, because I committed some traffic felony. Uh, if I knew... A traffic felony. A sorry. That's pretty, that's pretty serious. <laughs> no, but go ahead. I'm sorry. I just threw a quick image there. But go ahead. So you hit somebody... Violation. That's a the, much better Violation. <laughs> yeah, hopefully I didn't hit somebody. <laughs> a traffic violation. Which, uh, which I've noticed, though, people in Kenya, they don't really get close enough where they want to hit each other. Mm. It seems like it, tra traffic seems to work, but people get a lot closer without hitting each other. Yeah, no, I think they're definitely using their space quite effectively. You should go to Lagos at some point. Lagos is the most chaotic. And I can't imagine Indian cities, to be honest. I haven't really? so much time there. But I think just not enough space, right? And people really get competitive. 
Yeah, I've just noticed. Yeah, Kenyans are a little. Yeah, I mean, when I first got her. I thought everybody. It looks like they would be hitting each other in Los Angeles if they got that close. But people get really like they're almost like their cars are actually their bodies, mm. right? In Los Angeles, we stay a little bit. We keep a little bit of a distance mm. with our machinery. Mm. <laughs> you know, here they're just right up next to each other. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, you said you said you were talking about an example before I interrupted about um. About uh, my traffic felony. Your traffic felony. Yeah, let's go back to your traffic felony. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, you could think about it a couple of ways. As if we gave people clear expectations of what we think is, is real and isn't, isn't cheating and isn't deviating from it, um, people might feel a bit more comfortable operating within those parameters and not deviating from it, right? So imagine if we said the average traffic fine should be between you know $20 and $50, right? Um, my willing, like a, this is a little bit of a stretch, but my willingness to pay for, for a bribe that might be a, outside of that spectrum is probably much lower. So I'm, I may take the more honest route of saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to pay the fine because I know it's within this range when the guy's asking me for $60 or even for $10 because I know what's expected of me. I know what's likely to happen mm-hmm. um, if I go all the way through the court. The problem is there's so much uncertainty in what's going to happen. It's not necessarily clear. Um, another version of, of what could be happening is you know, imagine, you know, in that case, we're, we're giving them some information on what should be true in, the, in this case. And, and what we know, we're giving them information that we know they're cheating, that there's some awareness that if they go beyond that, it may not be 100% true, right? Like that we mm-hmm. know they've taken a little bit of liberty. It could be true. It's possible. Um, but it's, it's not necessarily what we would expect. Um, it could be something about how your, you know, we expect most traffic violations to be paid through this channel. We expect most, um, trying to think of a very specific concrete example, like with a port, you know, importing something to the, the, the port of Mombasa or something like that. If we said we expect most things to cost this amount, most things to be, um, you know, this duration to be processed and to go through this payment channel, um, it might give you a little bit more clarity and a little less uncertainty that the customs officials could use to, to, you know, basically, leave you a victim and make you think that my only route is to go through a corrupt path. Um, so it's a little bit about kind of giving people ex- more information, explicit information on what's expected, what's real. But who gives the, who gives the explicit information? I mean, ideally it's, it's some level of public you know, policy group or, mm-hmm. or from the national government. Um, I think activists and advocacy groups have a large role to play. I think people have been quite good with private industry here being some of the, the leaders and making sure that you're getting fair treatment and fair value for, for what you're um, consuming. So Safaricom, I think, does great work here in terms of how they communicate and how they um, provide value for, for average consumers from a telco perspective as well from a mobile money perspective. Um, I think you know I think some of your questions later on why is Kenya exciting and interesting, and I think it's because of the innovation that's happening on the fintech space, on the... Um, on the, the financial services with, you know, kind of the telco integration and, and everything that's spun out of that has been really exciting. What's the telco integration? Uh, so M-Pesa, mobile money. Um, you oh, know, wow, yeah. So Nairobi is, is the hub for, for mobile money and is, is, you know, kind of the leader in that space. So Safaricom, I think it was around 2008, 2009, I can't remember the exact date, built this money, you know, mobile money wallet system called M-Pesa. Mm-hmm. Basically, they saw that a lot of people were sending airtime to each other. So you can you can talk some Baza people. So you send them, I have 200 shillings airtime. You need some. I can send in your phone number and I'll give you 50 shillings. People were using that as a digital currency, right? But they didn't have a way to turn it back into cash. 
So if I have airtime, I can send it between each other and I could maybe sell it through an airtime card, but it was it required extra infrastructure. So did airtime actually have a, a translated value for, like was airtime, like if you said, look, I'll give you this, but I'll trade you some airtime for this. I mean, were people actually trading airtime for other goods and services? So you can, it's possible. I think a lot of times people were using it as like, okay, let me give you some cash and you send me some airtime. So you imagine someone who holds a lot of airtime, right? Could right. be selling it. Um, and because they weren't changing the value of it, right? Like, if like frequent flyer miles before they started controlling that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but it wasn't as efficient as it could be. And Safaricom noticed this and started to say, hey, there, there might be a market here. Maybe we should build something that allows people to take that value and turn it back into cash. Mm-hmm. And that's where this big mobile money network came about is they built the infrastructure to, to maintain it as a separate wallet. I can send money to your phone number if you're registered. It takes about two minutes. I encourage you to do it. And then I can store money on my wallet. And now there's this whole suite of you know loans and savings and pensions and you know, utility bills and all these different things oh, that are spun out QuickBooks. of it. QuickBooks. Everything is, everything is in Safari now. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's wild. Why don't we have that in the United States or England? Why, don't, why doesn't that ever, why doesn't it pick up? So this is what I, this is what I comment to my friends who are still in the States. They say we have Venmo now. Um, Venmo's, you know, it's pretty good. Like it definitely gets a lot of the services done. It's good for drug dealers. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I don't know the primary <laughs> use. Maybe that okay. is it. Um, I, I don't use it that often. I mean, PayPal's quite good, but I think there's just a lot of extra verification that, that's required, um, particularly for non-U.S. citizens. Um, is still, in my opinion, the best mobile money transfer service I've ever used. Um, it's seamless. It's fast. It has it has fees, but its convenience is incredible. The ability to cash out anywhere is, is really easy. Um, and I think, you know, other markets have actually followed and, and pursued this a little more aggressively since. So has Safari success. shared any of that information as far as like where people are spending the money and what, what they're spending it on? So there was one big study that came out about, I think it was two years ago. Um, there's a couple of researchers from, from Georgetown and MIT who they did a, a kind of nice clever design where they tried to figure out what was the impact in terms of um, you know, just, just economic growth and, and um, income increases for people who used M-Pesa. Um, and so it's, it's a science article that looked at, fortunately, early expansion efforts by Safaricom were a little bit random. Um, there was a business strategy, but there were a couple places where, like, the rollout of a lot of agents was not necessarily super intentional. It was, it was somewhat random just on based on where the distribution centers were. So they were able to use this, this randomness to try to see, okay, people had access maybe earlier than others. What does that mean in terms of their, their income, their business activities, their investments, lots of other things. Uh, and they, their best guess back at the envelope calculation is about a 2% increase in, in kind of like overall um, well, like income and, and well-being. Like it reduced the poverty rate by about 2%. Um, so in terms of, you know, easing business and making it smoother and faster and, and, you know, letting people get more financially included and, and access a wealth of different services that can help them. I think it's done huge things. Um, in terms of what other businesses can do, I, uh, you know, I think they've tried to spread the good word and the gospel of the value of mobile money. Uh, I don't, it hasn't been as successful in other markets, but Tanzania is doing quite well now. There's a pretty competitive market for three or four major mobile money providers who are all competing for, for a pretty, I think there's about 60% penetration. Um, lots of other markets are pushing it and, and doing their best, but I think it, it does take time. It, it, it wasn't an overnight success story, um, but I think it's definitely become somewhat of a, a new norm. As banks either trying to access those bottom of the pyramid customers, either through telcos or setting up their own agent networks to, to have that access. 
Yeah, I was fascinated. I mean, the first thing you do when you get it is you go to get a SIM card, right? Because it's per, crazy expensive just to keep an American phone number. And um, I hear there's just tiny little numbers you have to type in, and they give you a SIM card. You yeah, put, yeah, yeah. You get a little phone, and then you can buy some hours and buy some time. And then you can use it to buy anything you want. And, the, you know, the print is so small. And, and I thought, oh, my God. And everybody does it. Yeah. Everybody just goes in these Impesa shops, and they're all over the place. But I guess people... I mean, if it was 2008 that it first started, I mean, that's, that's pretty quick to be for it to be everywhere around the country. Is that unusual for people in Kenya to be suddenly so trustworthy of technology, or was it just demonstrated that it worked or everybody was using it? Yeah, I think, I think they demonstrated that it worked. They really prioritized customer care and customer service and, you know, thought about what are all the things that people are going to be concerned about right out the the bat. So sending a transfer and then it failing, um, not being able to get my money back if I make a mistake. Um, I think they've been ahead of the curve on kind of every principle of good customer service. And and I think as a result, they've they've gotten enormous loyalty. There's been other competitors who try to come in and capture some of the market. But I think the, I mean, I'm a pretty loyal Mpetsa user because the service is just high quality. Um, and the fees are, are, you know, they're non-trivial, but they are very worth, in my opinion, the, the value that's provided. I think early on, uh, you know, that was key and, and how they prioritized that was, was definitely essential. That's pretty, what, what are their, I, I wanted to, I just, I sort of want to know like what, what projects you guys are working on right now or what other things you're working on. But I guess, um, I mean, you mentioned you do some stuff for government for policy as well. Um, do you have any projects that you're working with for either the Kenyan government or Tanzania or Uganda or anything like that? Um, so I will, I will say we do some work and we, and we provide advice and we support, uh, different government agencies on, on both sides, on the service delivery side, as well as on the regulation side. Mm -hmm. Um, some of the coolest behavioral research that's come out, I think has been from what used to be the very powerful consumer financial protection bureau in the U S and now not quite so powerful, um, as well as the financial conduct authority in the UK. I think a lot of what they think about is how are firms potentially abusing people's own cognitive limitations and, and behavioral biases to get them to, to consume more than, than maybe they want to, or, or actually make decisions that aren't for their best interests. So we've, we've done a few kind of bits of and pieces of work with different regulators around the world to, to help kind of do that testing and think about where, where there might be vulnerabilities in the market, where consumers might be choosing things that they're not thinking that intentionally about and as a result end up worse off. Um, oh, so you're on the other side. Sometimes. sometimes. We play both sides. We, 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 we like to help firms that we think are increasing you know, value propositions to customers and really disrupting the market. And PESA disrupted this market for forever and has made it, Kenya, a, a leader in, globally in, in how do people think about financial services for, for the bottom of the pyramid. Um, I think we, we recognize there's there's oh Mpesa so, was one of your clients. Uh, no 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 I don't want to say, I'm, I'm no. not saying that we weren't around when Mpesa got started, um, but I think they did. I think they've d- tapped into uh, a lot of the the best insights from behavioral science to make their product succeed. So I can I I, I guess I, I skirted your question entirely, but I, I nicely I done say, though. Yeah, no, nicely, I did my best. Very definitely done. Um, I'd say that both sides are thinking about this, and I think that's a great thing. It's, that's fascinating. Cause I mean, I, they always say the smartest people in America are trying to figure out how to keep you on Facebook for twelve more seconds. I think right? that's true. But there is another. But there's another group you're talking about who are actually looking at that and looking how people are being exploited. Yeah, and I think I think the academic world doesn't have a strict man. You know, they're not on either side. They they want to do. They want to understand the world, right? 
And there's often ways to do that from a policy angle that's going to have more impact and help more people. And, and they generally, I think, want to understand people to advance some good in the world, right? And, and make it a, a better place where we can have policies that reflect our own preferences. Um, so I think we're tapped in more with the academic circles mm -hmm. and they tend to, to play on both sides as well. They like working with the Facebooks because there's a lot of interesting things to learn there. They sure. like working with, you know, the big regulators because they can lead to policy that actually affects people and, and kind of helps design a better, more inclusive environment. I was thinking about uh, like what you just said about corruption. I mean, there's you must have some business. I mean, if I'm pretty new at this in terms of what you're doing, but you must have some businesses that come in and say, okay, how much, what I'm trying to say is are do foreign companies that come in to work in Kenya, in this region, do they um, encourage corruption by participating in it? So our goal when we're re researching any of this is definitely to figure out ways to, to understand it and, and understand where it's being rationalized and where it's not and hopefully reduce it. Um, I don't think we, you know, when we work with a, with a government agency thinking about that, they're often thinking about how to, you know, they're having huge leakage issues or they're having problems and they're trying to figure out how can they just instill a better culture of, of non-corruption or, or challenges on that side. Sure. We haven't worked with big companies to, to think about that. I have no idea how they're thinking about it. I'm sure they, you know, they've calculated some, some, some cost of doing business sort of thing and, and think about when they're entering a market, what does that look like? There's been some cool research on how culture can influence corruption. And um, there's, there's a couple interesting papers by Ted Miguel and a couple others from Berkeley um, that looked at how people paid parking violations at the UN. Um, so they wanted to understand really? if, so UN diplomats aren't subject to parking violations, right? right. Um, they're, they're international diplomats. They don't, aren't actually residents of the state of New York. Um, they, they park wherever they want sometimes, and they get parking tickets, but they don't have to pay them. So they looked at by country, like who is most likely to have parking tickets, because I could say something about is there sort of a, a more – is it more culturally acceptable to, to kind of flaunt uh, different, different uh, you know, traffic violations and things of the sort, sure. or traffic – what do I call them? Felonies. <laughs> traffic <laughs> felonies. Uh, and they found that uh, typically Middle Eastern countries had the, the highest delinquency rate. Um, Scandinavian countries had but the is lowest. that because it was in the United States though maybe so th there, there's a possibility it. that yeah it's it's more about rejecting uh, your, the, the that the UN had to be housed in the US right um, I, I don't know but there's an interesting sort of question about like what your experience growing up in terms of, of how you're socialized how does that lead to, to your thoughts on on where you should challenge this or where you should just accept it as is but what were some of the papers about about corruption? I mean, I'd heard some that well, it's you know, it, it's people want their representative to be influential, successful. They want him to be powerful. They feel like he or she deserves to be rewarded for bringing something back to mm. to the group. Um, is that way into the the corruption problem at all? I'm interested in some of the behavioral elements of it, right? So like how honesty and how changes in primes that make you more honest or less honest might lead to different outcomes in the, 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 the broader kind of corruption environment. Um, I don't know enough about, you know, what is driving corruption at an yeah. ecosystem level. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, really what we're thinking about when we're doing these tests is to get quick measurement and experimental tools in the hands of policymakers, in the hands of businesses, such that they can figure this out themselves. Because they, they have way better ideas than either of us in terms mm -hmm. of what could reduce corruption, but they need quick ways to validate or test or kind of figure out what could scale or what would work. So how would you do a quick test that you would do a test? How big would your sample be? Like how many people would you? So it depends. I think, you know, when we start, 
we think about a specific mechanism. We think about a lever. So the honesty example, right? Sure. Um, we think what is what is a potential prime or change in environment that could, could lead to more honest behavior? Um, and, and we're not saying honesty is the same as corruption, but we're saying it's one of the levers potentially. <clears throat> so we, we try a bunch of things out and then we figure out what's working or what's not. Um, so we tried these three, we tried monitoring, we tried the ex explicit expectations, we tried the rotations, we found the explicit expectations worked. Now we're going to try a whole bunch of different things within that. So we figured that out. We said the eight to 12 range. What about seven to 13? What about six to 14? What about nine to 11? What about 10? What if we said we expect it to be 10? Okay. Then what does that lead in terms of the threshold of flexibility? And then that tells us something the next level that we can say, okay, we think this is a, a mechanism that's fairly consistent. It's held up in a couple of different populations. Each of these are quick tests overnight, you know, kind of 50 people um, where we randomize them into a control on this. And then we start to think about, okay, how could we test this in a real world setting, right? Sure. How could we change something about some uh, experience at, at uh, I don't know, a public service office? How could we think about something that we could test in a, in a more live setting? Because that's really what it's going to be hard to make a policy until you, you've shown they can work in the real world. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where we go talk to our, our partners in the government and think about what are things we want to do, what do we think is going to be the most useful. But I think our value add and, and what we think is, is really important is for people to get directionally in the right, the right area. Because every you know, all policymakers we talk to, monitoring for sure, that's the, that's the right answer, right? You should do that. We found it, it may work, but only if it's really expensively and cumbersomely implemented. So... Our monitors were there every maybe five flips. Someone would be watching you. So yeah, maybe you didn't cheat on that one flip, but you cheated on the other four. Like, or maybe you're because you got away with one, you might feel more likely that you're able to cheat. So you cheat even more often. Like you have to think about the implementation. That's very expensive and costly versus something that might be lower cost and easier. So you you say it probably depends on economic level. Like if somebody would take the. Um you know, take the take the one cookie now or the the two cookies later. That that, that test that you you mentioned something about I think in your notes about how that depends on you know poverty level. Yeah, so I think so. This is the big question people ask us whenever they kind of walk in the door. Is okay. Your whole mission is about doing behavioral science and and you know psych lab experiments in. Um, new markets to, to, you know, basically make sure that we're not just taking insights from undergrad students at Cambridge. Um, what are the biggest things you think are different? And I think there's three buckets that, that we tend to, to feel um, differ uh, by, by socioeconomic status and by culture. Um, and I think that the interesting thing is, is that socioeconomic status seems to matter more than culture is what we're, we're starting to see. There are some cultural elements. There are definitely some things that are, are driven by background and, and culture that's going on. But if you look at even within, uh, within a low-income and a high-income population within Kenya, as well as in the States, you find some more similarities amongst the low-income across both countries, as well as the high-income across both countries. So it makes you sort of think, okay, maybe it's more about poverty, maybe it's more about income scarcity, than it is really about cultural background. Um, and that kind of resounds with what a lot of people think in the behavioral science literature, is these are cognitive limitations of our brain. They're not necessarily things that we've learned or been taught. It's just that this is the shortcuts that our brain has sort of developed to answer certain questions. And, and as a result, it shouldn't change where we, but based on where we were raised. So that's sort of the first one is we think socioeconomic status tends to matter more. Hmm. Um, the second is that they differ, but in different ways. It's not like people, I think, sometimes assume that maybe lower income people are just more biased generally, right? Um, we do find that amongst risk and time preferences. 
Uh, what we call biased here is that they're more impatient. Um, they tend to take a higher discount rate for if you ask them to choose between money today and money in a month, um, they will take a pretty extreme discount rate. So you know you might be willing to take a dollar today as compared to a ten dollars in in a month. Whereas someone who's from a little more high income still has a discount rate because you know money has more value today than it does in a month. But it might be something like eight dollars to ten dollars, right? So and that has real economic implications because this person. There is a potential scenario where they could turn a dollar into ten dollars in a month, but it's also their sacrifice. You know that their their sacrifice, their discount is equivalent to losing nine dollars in, in the grand scheme of it. So um, you say that was more like their socioeconomic status or their background. So I think it's socioeconomic mm-hmm. status at that point. That's what. Mm-hmm. Um, so Johannes, our, our founder, has done a, a, a really nice meta-analysis on this that kind of showed across a number of studies that time preferences and risk preferences seem to be systematically different amongst lower income populations. So across the world, they've done these studies um, and kind of found that people are a little bit more impatient and they're a little bit more risk averse. Um, And I think that reflects this idea of uncertainty. I think people in resource constrained environments are dealing with a lot more uncertainty. But that's also fascinating because elements like tribe and and identity, um, you know, those, those seem like, I mean, obviously they make they, they they make a difference and they have their have their influence, but it's almost like they could be they could be used as rationalizations. So we do some research on the political science side of of things and thinking about how ethnicity or identity can can factor into how people justify things. I think we've done some light research trying to figure out if people associate that identity with being treated a certain way. Does it does it make them think differently or do they do they feel more upset about it or do they react differently um we don't find a ton of conclusive evidence on that there is some evidence that particularly groups that have traditionally performed less well if they've they're primed to think about that before they perform on something they tend to it's uh what's 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 the bias called it's um it's like stereotype threat or or almost stereotype fulfillment um but uh of some sort basically if you tell they did a study in India where they said low caste individuals perform about, I can't remember, a number of points less well on this test. And just by telling people that before they took the test, the low caste performers tend to do much worse, right? So it's just like sort of being a, it's self-fulfilling yeah. prophecy, right? Yeah. Like they've been told they're doing this. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting applications from an education perspective around how we should make sure that the environment's as, as free and open and, and sort of like not, not emphasizing these points as, as before. Um, but yeah, so that's, I think, the one we found to be pretty consistent is that socioeconomic status tends not to matter as, as, as much as, as cultural background as we might think from what we've seen for now. I think the other two interesting things I think about when designing things here versus designing in the U.S. is, is one, decisions are much less individually made, I think. So behavioral designers in the U.S., you look at the various government units, um, like the BIT or the social and behavioral science team. It's a, it's a White House unit that designs lots of, um, you know, various forms you go through. Mm-hmm. They're very much thinking about form design, individual decisions, how I'm going to experience an online platform, how I'm going to go through and basically fill out my FAFSA or, you know, my, my tax form or things like that. I think a much smaller share of decisions here are made individually. So I think people are doing less online, obviously, but I think they're also considering a lot of different perspectives when they're coming to a final decision. So an example I'll, I'll, I'll share with you. Fundraising, um, charitable giving, wealth of research on charitable giving in the U.S., how to increase it, how to get donors to be a bit more altruistic and, and you know share more resources for, for domestic as well as international charities. Mm-hmm. Um, 
charitable giving here, very common. Kenya is actually one of the highest net giving countries per capita in terms of relative to their income in the world. Um, but it's mostly kind of domestic fundraisers for hospital bills or funerals or, or various things. It's a very social function. It's this big event. People come and they're thinking about different things. Where when I'm going through a fundraiser on like a website, a Kickstarter campaign, I might be thinking about, okay, how fast is this campaign moving? What did other people do? You know, what is my individual contribution going to buy me? What is the signal to other people? Am I a good person? Do I feel, you know, am I going to achieve the, the charity's goal? All those types of things. But they're very much about my decision. Um, I think when I'm going to a fundraiser, there's so many things I'm thinking about. It's like, where do I fall in this group of people? What do I want to signal or communicate about what my contribution means from my perspective, how it is relative to my income? Mm-hmm. How, what time does my, does my gift come in? Does it, is it initial kind of momentum raiser? Is it after when I'm going to close it out and take credit? Like it's a much more social decision, right? I'm, I'm, using my decision to hopefully influence others and think about the collective goal, which, which I think we tend to find is, is people are making decisions in isolation a lot less often. So you have to think about that when you're designing the right kind of tools and, and tweaks. Oh, that's interesting. You notice it with, um, like, I've just noticed walking around, like, from here to Yaya or up into, I live, like, have a place in Kilimani. But there's this uh, mutatu, mutatu culture, right? And it, it seems like, um, it's a very social thing, like which bus you choose to get on, like what, yeah. what, what the logo is, who's yelling, who's, it seems like there's a variety of different buses you have a choice to take or get into. And I mean, they're painted with like sporting figures and movies and all kinds of things. And they yeah, have music yeah. playing in them. And um, I, I watched them one time and I, I realized, wow, there's a lot, a, a lot of people get in those buses and they just sit there. Right. And they talk to people. Sometimes they know the people that are in there. And, um, I think, God, if they are just walking, (laughs) it almost looks like there's more of a priority, more of a, it was more important to be in a social, a social group just to move around the city as well. There's some really cool, um, there's some really cool photography collections of different matatus and they, it makes you think a lot about the choice of, so I I haven't thought about the idea that I sit in a matatu because I want to be social and spend time with someone else rather than walk. I think that's an, it's possible because people do tend to, to, to wait a little bit, but you also see the counterpoint where people will stand at the stage for a very long time. So people will be waiting at the stage and then all of a sudden there'll be enough momentum for one matatu that everyone will move because people don't want to sit waiting because everyone's like, oh, we're just about to leave. We're just about to leave. And you get in the matatu and there's two people there and you're going to wait for 30 minutes until it fills oh, so up. You, they wait for that like critical moment. It's like when everyone kind of, kind of aligns in. and coordinates and said, we're going to this one and now it's full and then it's too full and you can't get in, right? And, and so you have this quick 20 second gap where you have to identify this is where everyone's going to go because once it's full, people will start to, to move and the, the matatu will drive. Um, but it makes you think about this decision of which matatu do I select and why they're so colorful and they have such great you know, sound systems. They can't, they're making money, but the amount of investment that goes into these you know, buses is in, enormous to, to I mean, differentiate it's, and themselves. It's, I mean, I've seen, I've seen online there's like maps of where they go. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, but usually you just walk by when they yell at you, Karen, go to Karen. <laughs> you don't have to look anything up. You don't have to translate. You don't have to like look at the bus. You know, look like at the bus station bus numbers or anything it's just somebody yells at you where they're going and it's a very efficient like it's one of the arguably from like a private public transport system it's it's one of the most efficient dynamic systems i've ever experienced um we're you know new jersey or you know new york metro is obviously something that that's wonderful and and you know very centrally planned and has done great things but i would argue that the matatu network here while it may be a little more ad hoc and and dynamic 
um, it's responding when there is a road shutdown. It is, you know, within minutes, the entirety of, of the Matatu routes have coordinated. They've taken other routes. They've made sure passengers still have access to the channels they want to go to, the, the stops they want. But they've also updated to, to respond to the traffic. So it's pretty fast. The prices are moving daily within certain bands hourly, right? You're seeing price jumps and they're, they're very reflective of the demand, right? At peak hours, it'll jump double even, you know. And after and peak times. hours, they're gone. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's just not there. It's just a regular street again. Incredible. I, I, I argue it's an incredibly efficient it's not like private you have system. tracks running through the middle of the city or anything. They disappear. Yeah, yeah. So I guess um, we've got about, I don't know, maybe five, maybe five or ten, five minutes left. I don't want to take up too much of your time. I really appreciate this. Let's see. Anything that you wanted to throw in? If I had to highlight those three main kind of things that I think we've seen are a little bit different, or you have to think a little bit harder about in this environment than maybe designing uh, as a behavioral scientist in, in the U S is I think that, you know, this idea of uncertainty aversion, which I think you see the systematic difference in time and risk preferences. I think scams fits into that. I think the other two things we talked a little bit about is like social decision-making this idea that, you know, decisions are not as isolated or independent as they might be elsewhere. And then the third is really this, this sense of making things easier is not always what people want. I think we assume that we try, we want to make things automatic and easy. Like we think about financial products, we want to, you know, make it such that you can just sign up and then have recurrent billing, right? Every month you get something paid for. You don't have to go sure. through the process of billing it. I think a lot of decisions are made, you know, resources are more scarce. People are making decisions with, with a very finite set of income and they have to update faster, I think. So you find... I think we've seen a little bit of evidence to suggest that people might prefer a more piecemeal approach to, to certain decisions. Um, so the example I was given is we ran a big study with a, a savings product here. Um, and we were thinking about what's the best way to get people to use this, right? People had signed up, but they weren't really saving a ton. Um, we did this with some, some researchers from Duke University and the World Bank. And we were curious, okay, let's try a bunch of different things. We tried uh, text message reminders, just, you know, say, Hey, make sure to save for your future. We tried framing those text message reminders from their kids, right? So we'd say, Hey, your firstborn son's name is Johnny. We'll send a text message every week that says, Hey mom, make sure to save for our future from Johnny, right? They knew what it was, but it was just sort of that emotional pull, right? Okay. Um, and then the other two we tried was a, a matching contribution. So for every, you know, hundred shillings you save, we'll, we'll add 10 shillings on top. Um, we framed it, we, the clever behavioral things, we framed it in two ways. One was we'd give you the money first, and then if you saved, you get to keep it. So that's loss aversion. Um, versus if you saved, we would just top it up at the end. So it's, it's just flipping the, the framing of it. Um, but the last one we did, which was ultimately the most effective, was we gave them this gold coin. And so at onboarding, we said, this is a six-month promotion. It's a gold coin. It's meant to sort of visualize your savings, but it's also a progress tracker. So every week, we'll let you let you know if you saved or not. Um, we'll remind you of whether you did. And then you'll be asked to scratch like one of the numbers. So it had numbers one through 24. It's a way to kind of keep track of the progress you're achieving, where you're moving. Um, and really, you know, we think about the easiest way to promote savings, just have an auto deduct, right? When you get paid, deduct 5%, go to my savings account. People aren't dealing with automation as, as much. They're not on salaries. They're, they're dealing with, you know, day by day kind of wages. They're thinking about how do I put them in? And so I think making those discrete actions a little more meaningful and purposeful, which I think is what we did with the, the coin is when you were saving, you got credit for it. You were rewarded for it. You thought about it. You were intentional. It, it kind of introduced the idea of I'm, you know, now making progress towards my goal. I can feel it, um, led to people saving a lot more. 
I, there's another argument that the coin was just nice and pretty, and so people felt good, so they saved more. But they saved about five times as much as the people who were getting just text messages, right? So you can think, and the coin cost, I think it was like 25 cents or something like that. So it's a very cheap promotion. It wasn't uh, like a limited edition that you buy on television? <laughs> no, 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 no. no. <laughs> Collector's <laughs> edition, authentic <laughs> silver coin. It was like an actual coin, just real coin. So it's go, here, I can, I can hand you one. I have, I have them over here. I yeah. can, I, we keep some of these hanging around. I mean, yeah, it's interesting that that well, it's because you don't really get this out of um, you know online or internet or te- te- technological approaches like M Pesa. You don't really handle any pesos, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's but the worry is, is that this has weight as well. So it's it's it looks not, gold. So I think the really. idea is just that you know M Pesa is incredibly efficient and helpful. I think it's a number on a screen. So if I want to save, it's a great payments platform. I think for savings, I'm not feeling the same benefit as I might get from when I, you know, have a herd of cattle, or if I'm, you know, keeping money under my mattress, or I'm investing it in my little shop, which I keep inventory. I can see it growing. I can feel it kind of like yeah. affecting me. And maybe that does this. I think a big part of it was this idea of of engaging with it, right, and and having sort of some level of interactivity with your money, um, which which I think is the benefit is so it's not about automating and easing it and making it as easy as possible. I think it's actually about slowing it down and, and really getting people to our, you know, our initial thought was this wasn't going to work. It was going to be about the matching, right. Or it was going to be about the emotions. Right. But, but this kind of surprised us. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think we think many of these things are generalizable across the world. We want to make sure that there's better research tools, systems, and methods available and that, Firms and government and industry, everyone's using them to, to design products that really reflect our own behaviors. I think that's sort of our, our ethos, why we're here, why we're doing yeah. what we're doing. Um, but I think we've been surprised that more is similar than is different. But the things that are different just take a really kind of keen eye to think about, you know, what is the environment we're designing? And how, much does, how much does the context drive the decision? And, and what can we learn from there? So, so what's, the, what's the thing you've been surprised with the most since you've had this job in terms of like people's behavior? I think I'm I'm pretty consistently surprised with how how strong other regarding preferences are even for for people that you have very loose contact with. I think I think that's so a classic example is you bring people into a lab, they play this small game called a dictator game, right? Basically we're we're matched in the lab. You won, so you're the dictator. You have I give you $5. You have the option to share any of that with me that you want to, but you don't have to. It's your money. Mm-hmm. Um, you do, and, and you do pretty consistently. Um, across even the most low-income, the most extreme kind of settings, this, this desire for fairness, this desire for sort of feeling like everyone deserves a little bit of help, everyone kind of needs, needs something, and, and not just thinking about yourself. Like, I think we see that across lots of different environments, but I'm, I've been surprised that even in in pretty resource-scarce environments, you see consistent, if not higher, levels of, of altruism and, and kind of other regarding preferences. So I think that's, it's not shocking, but I think the magnitude is, is something people don't appreciate. Is You know, there's this idea of community, and everyone kind of likes to romanticize that, but I think in terms of general, I don't know anything about you, but I recognize that I got lucky today, and I need to make sure that, you know, I'm not the only one who got lucky, and, and that everyone needs a little bit of a helping hand. I'm surprised how much you see it. Um, so yeah, maybe that's, that's the one. That's probably, that's interesting. You mean, you mean how much you would share with somebody face to face in these examples? Someone, no, you don't even know them. They're somebody just someone else. It's just a they're, name. They're in the room. Button. Oh, they're in the room. But you don't know who they are. So they're there physically. Yes. 
Do you think people would react the same if it was just choice? People want Facebook friends or just emails? Yeah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, and that might say something about our society, right? Is like maybe why people feel worried that we're getting a little colder or we're getting a little less, dis- a little more distance because we just don't have as much face-to-face interaction, right? Yeah, um, we're not holding a real coin in our hands. Yeah, they've done some of that research where they play the same game with anonymous people where you don't have any communication. And I, I can't remember the results off the top of my head, but I'd be surprised if it wasn't reduced. Um, right. And especially if it's one-to-one where we see each other and we're looking at each other, of course it's going to be higher. But we've been surprised where people have very loose social ties, no connection, and just sort of are pretty altruistic. They're pretty willing to share. Well, that's hopeful. Yeah, maybe we can have something positive to end on. Started from government. You know, what what are we seeing? What are we monitoring? Corruption, traffic felonies. Yeah, we end up with some hope for mankind. James, thank you very much for for, for giving me your time, and uh, you're doing really amazing things here. Pleasure. Definitely. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark.